Alrighty. I always tend to start these things on time. Twitch is like, you know, wait until people start to show up, have a long stream. I'm like, man, I talk to busy people. And, and luckily enough, today I'm talking to a very busy person, uh, Emma Hayes, Chelsea women heads coach um, and illustrious career, MBE, I believe is what you have. Yes. I, see, I, I remember that. I'm not, I'm not from this country, but I occasionally familiarize myself with the, the royal uh, rewards or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're going to talk to you today about your past career, um, about your thoughts on various things around football, um, and let's get started. So hey, say hello. Well, hello. How are you? Haven't, haven't spoke to you for a good week. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, actually. We, yeah. we, we talk somewhat regularly. Actually, that reminds me. I, I feel like you have to tell this story. So Emma... Um, before the end of last year, I believe it was, might have been the beginning of this year. Uh, it was definitely in the winter time. Decided to invite me out to uh, to Surrey, which I believe is where your training ground is, out at Cobham. Innocent as pie, uh, you know, just just come out and visit. Wanted to catch up with you on some stuff. The team wanted to talk a little bit about some of the the things we we learned in the autumn. And uh, and I show up there, and I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll come do this because I like talking to Anna anyway. And, uh, and what happens when I show up there, Emma? Would you like to hop into a meeting with us, perhaps? Hey, do you mind if they film? Is that okay? You know, just, just innocently asking such things. Yeah, that's uh, the docu-series that have <laughs> uh, been with us for, feels forever, but 12 months now. And uh, they have inverse even those behind the camera to stats bomb and how we incorporate it into our daily lives so i think for them they were just so pleased to meet you because they'd heard so much about stats bomb in our year so i thought it was a nice little cameo appearance it was lovely you didn't prepare me though and then you gave me a hard time about wearing an arsenal colored scarf so Mm. i felt like it was only fair that i needed to put Mm. this picture up there uh, as we start talking about your your past lives in, in football, which is fascinating. Uh, so I, I think I read that you injured your ankle when you were young and, and to the extent that you can't play football almost at all now. Definitely not. I, I, it's the thing I miss the most. I, I ripped my cartilage out of my ankle. I have no cartilage. So I have an almost fused joint with a lot of drilling and a lot of scar tissue keeping me uh, away from it being fused joint. So that was really traumatic for me as a teenager to experience something at about 12. And it wasn't until I was about 17 and the necessary MRIs were put in place that I was told that there's not really much they can do about it. I'm pretty certain if that had happened now, um, I would have been able to get the microfracture, which I then got years later. But that meant that I couldn't do the thing I probably loved the most, and it pushed me down an academic route and into something completely different, which was good too. It's probably the, the arse-kicking I needed in my life because <laughs> I was never going to pay my wages. And uh, I went to university and went down a different route, which I always credit for getting me to the States because I think having the ability to speak Spanish plus having a degree got me the working visa to go to the US. So inadvertently, I I got round to doing and being involved with the thing I love the most, albeit not in the capacity I expected. And you started coaching at age 20, as I believe what I I had read. Yeah, I, I actually started coaching my university team I turned into the bus driver and everything else and played a little bit for as long as the body would allow me before I had to, to suck myself out. But then I just coached them. And in between, my dad would bring up Arsenal kits that Vic Akers had given him at the end of the season. So Vic Akers has been a big part of my life. And my dad would drive up at the beginning of my college year and bring old Arsenal ladies kits. <laughs> my university team... For three years, always wearing Arsenal colours. I, 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 I had not heard that bit. And then, uh, so that we'll, we'll fast forward a bit. But in, in the meantime, you go to the United States. 
2003, um, I, I, there's this great story online about you getting sort of promoted <laughs> almost inadvertently. And then you know, your condition of promotion was that you would be able to, to drop the, the goalkeeper, right? Well, not quite. I was working at a local youth club in Stony Brook and the women's pro team on the island at that time was the Long Island Lady Riders. They were semi-pro side that played in the USL. And I was encouraged to go down just to watch sessions, watch the coach. It was an English guy whose name's completely gone from me. Anyway, he'd had a tantrum and decided whatever, he'd lost it and quit. And out he went. And the general manager of the organization, a woman called Kim Wyant, who was actually the first women's U.S. Uh, national team goalkeeper, she said to me, do you want to step in and do it? And at 25, I'm standing there looking at her among others. And she was 37 at the time and thinking, I can't say no, but I haven't got a clue what I'm about to do. Uh-huh. And took on the job of having to report to my goalkeeper during the day because I served as a community camps director and I was there to promote community camps during the day. In the evening, I trained the team and then at the weekend, I'd select the team. And this was the last year of her career. And she wasn't, she found it extremely difficult to work and train and play all at once and her level wasn't at the same level. And the team felt a little bit, let down with that and I did the right thing a tough thing which was I picked the goalkeeper that deserved to play and it wasn't her for a major final and that didn't go down too well and I got handed my P45 I think once we'd qualified gone through season ended I got the W League coach of the year and I got fired yeah I saw that that's uh yeah (laughs) Great lesson. Great lesson in making a tough decision, even though it's not popular. I learned I learn a lot about that. That's for sure. And I'm grateful for Kim for the opportunity. But I if I reflect on it, could I have managed it better? I don't remember it to know the answer to that. I just know that making tough decisions is what you have to do in my position. So then you go on to Iona College, and, and I think a lot of people don't understand, even at this time, quite how big women's football is in the United States compared to what it was like in Europe. Like there were, there's just tons of, of girls that turn into, you know, I, I wouldn't say semi-professional, but like, you know, college football players uh, all around the United States. And, and so there are lots of colleges that need coaches. And you go to Iona, which is Westchester County, one of the richest counties in, in New York, um, and, and actually probably in the United States and, uh, and spent a few years there as well. Yeah, I had some really good friends in the, in the New York Long Island fraternity. I haven't been there. I was there seven years in total. And friends of mine who were the coaches at Columbia University at the time um, encouraged me to go for the job. And I remember going into the interview process and sitting in a corridor with some male candidates and coming from England, this this certainly carries more weight as an English woman than maybe it would have for my American female counterparts. And I remember sitting in the in the hallway and thinking to myself, oh my God, if all things are even, I'm going to get the job. Because Title IX was ringing in the back of my head and and... And it might not seem like a important statement, but if you think about what that might have done for my confidence levels and not having to go through, I think some of the experiences, some of British females that, that I hear about what they went through in their 20s, the rejection, the not being able to get a fair crack at a job, etc. I was getting, I was provided the opposite opportunity. And I went into a job with a brilliant AD who... For three years, I had a wonderful team that were we referred to each other as the bad news bears. And you would understand that, Ted, being American. And we were the team that would, we played in a 3-4-3. And it didn't matter the ranking of the opponent we played, we would always find a way. And it wasn't pretty, but it was spirited. And still to this day, I own a college has been my favourite coaching job 
for reasons of just being with a fabulous group of people and being part of an athletic community, which, like you said, the college the college world is a really good one to develop in and one that I will remember fondly for just having a blast, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's lovely. And, and Americans especially have just wonderfully positive feelings about most of their university time, partly because of the sporting experiences. Like there is a lot of sport that happens there across like so many different types of sport, men and women. And I think that that is, is something that's pretty unique to the American university education spectrum that doesn't necessarily exist elsewhere. But as good as it was, you came back to the UK. I got the phone call from Vic Akers three years into my job saying uh, Fred Donnelly had retired and the academy director job was coming up and the first team assistant coach job and do I want it and having played for Vic as a child um, I'd had a long enough relationship with him and my father was and is good friend with Vic um, I was so torn I was happy in the US but it was a job I couldn't turn down and I to and fro with it for a while and then when I came home to watch Actually, my best mate, Kirsty Peeling, would tire the last game of the season in the FA Cup final for Arsenal. And I thought, you know what, um, this is invaluable experience. This is a great team that should compete for Europe. And that's the experience I can't turn down at this stage of my career. So went home, coached the academy, the 16 to 19s. It was a brilliant class of players, a lot of them still playing. And I got to work day in, day out with the most spirited together team I've ever worked with um, to this point. And won the, to win the Women's Cup, as it was known then, was a David and Goliath story to beat the overwhelming outright favourites, Umia, with the the effervescent young Marta in the team and the team. Marta's 21 years old at this point and Elaine is 24. Like this is, Marta is, is just morphing into basically the best player in the world for a decade. She was unbelievable. And our two midfielders, Jane Ludlow and Katie Chapman did such a job on her, uh, took her out of the game in both legs. And of course, there's all, as always a great deal of luck. But it was spirit and togetherness in that side. And to win that, win the quadruple this year, to see that posted the other day by players. And Vic called me the other day. I, I have such fond memories of, of that time. And, and one that I think has, it shaped me no end. Um, and I end up here. Yes, people don't really understand, like, so in, in this time period, um, there weren't many paying professional women's leagues. Uh, the U.S. had had a couple that had gone bust, um, you know, off of the back of different World Cup campaigns. And Sweden and the Demalsvenskan was actually one of the best leagues in the world. Many of the Brazilians uh, went up there to play, uh, along with, I think they, on, on that team, there there's a, a Chinese a player who also like China had has had a very good national team on the women's side for a very long time, and then there's a there's baby Ramona Bachman that uh, yeah. that was in there as well, and she got subbed on late. But I think that more important to me um, as as an Arsenal fan, but also like just kind of coming up to speed on on women's football here in the UK was like this is kind of a landmark team for British women's football. I know the the Euros team kind of felt like that on the broader scale. But, you know, in that in that squad that you guys had, you had Alex Scott in there. You had Rachel Yankee in there. You had Leanne Sanderson in there. You had a young Karen Carney in there. Um, Faye White's in there. Gilly Flaherty's still playing. And and that's just in, like, the, the, the ones that were in the main team. And then you had quite a good academy that came as well. Like, Arsenal women were absolutely dynamite during that period of time. We had, we had the captain of Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and England. <laughs> Now, that's saying something. Jane Ludlow, I mean, if Jane Ludlow was English, she would be talked about in the same way Kelly Smith is, in my opinion. She was that good. You've got Emma Byrne, Kim, unbelievable leaders. And you've got probably one of the best number nines ever there's ever been in Julie Fleeting. Yeah. In terms of knowing where she was within the width of the box and be able to finish. I mean, that it was an illustrious group. New 
they just they knew each other well enough on the pitch. They the chemistry, the telepathy, and as I say, the they had a, they had a leader in Vic who had fought year in year out to give them the best he could, um, and provided them with the best possible research resources. And he drove professionalism even before professional came into place. And it was just brilliant. Honestly, one of my favourite days, and my family still talk about it, to to do what we did at Boreham Wood in front of our friends and family was just stuff dreams are made of. It really was, you know, hair on the back of your your chest, etc. And I just always remember it fondly for the people and how brilliant they were. I want to flag up that phrase there because it's it's so unusual because it it was played in a very different way. People are familiar with men's football, like you said, clinched it at Boreham Wood. It's a two-legged final played at each team's home stadium at that time. I know uh, uh, that that is the interesting part. I remember because if we wanted to play the game at the Emirates. I think it, the Emirates were there. Forgive me if I've got it wrong, if it was Highbury. I think it was Emirates. And and I said, Vic, this is our home. We got the chance to win it in front of our fans. Is this going to be really uncomfortable for them? 6,000 people, uh, you know, red and white flags, uh, you know, red and white faces. flags. We can make this uh, exactly what we want it to be. And I mean, the crowd was hanging over the edge. And I think we played 90 minutes at home without the ball. I remember being camped in our half and it being the longest, probably 13 minutes from time I have ever experienced in my life. It felt like it never ended. And when Ramona Backman came onto the pitch, she just, her twinkle toes caused all manner of problems and we hung on for dear life. And the, the relief, the ecstasy, all of those things at the end is... A moment to treasure and, and one that I, I know everybody involved with that team will say exactly the same. That it's probably one of their favourite football memories in their career. And, and it should be. Obviously, it's the pinnacle of, of yeah. women's football at the time. That's, that's like club football. And, uh, and yeah, it remains incredibly impressive. So you're there for two seasons. And then one of the, the women's teams in the, the US League at the time, the Chicago Red Stars, comes calling. What was that like? And what did you think of Chicago? Well, I had the opportunity to stay at Arsenal and take over from Vic. I had the opportunity to go to St. Louis and be the head coach there or go to Chicago. And I turned Chicago down initially because my head got, no, my heart got in the way of my head and I wanted to stay at Arsenal. And then I realised I was missing out on a wonderful opportunity to grow and develop and I didn't choose the most money I chose the best city and a place that I absolutely loved living in even though I had a mixed somewhat miserable experience in terms of the wins and losses but in terms of the learning and the growth I managed to uh, I, I made the right decision because I think without all of that together, building a team from start up, you know, having a losing team, having a dressing room that didn't quite work, uh, dealing with eight owners, it felt like there were eight or so owners. <laughs> the challenges involved with are we going to make payroll this month? The challenges of uh, the US Women's National and that in itself, there's huge challenges with the, the player power, which I noticed when I worked out there. Very different to here. Uh, the whole thing was uh, invaluable in, in my journey. And for two years, I, I certainly learned the hard things I needed to. Adversity is is not to be underestimated, you know, from a player perspective, but also from a coaching perspective. And and dealing with hard times is actually a hugely valuable skill set that is probably not respected enough. Like when we talk to, about coaches, coaches, even great coaches often fail at their first stop. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because learning how to fail is a skill. And also learning to deal with like the tensions around that can teach you a lot because you're allowed, 
I mean, you're not allowed, like you're almost never allowed to experiment. We'll talk a little bit more about coaching in a bit because I want to pick your brain on that. But it like that dealing with adversity and not having a great team and having to struggle through that, you know, I, I'm sure you learned a ton there. I, I think the older I get, the more vulnerable I become about sharing that whole notion because it's a job where it's a lonely job where you the buck stops with you and often you know, people will talk about well you know who who's there to help you in your etc etc so much that coaches go through in their struggles is on their own so you could be weighing things up in your mind back and forth unable to necessarily make clear decisions because you're afraid to make a mistake and that is is tough, I think, as a younger coach, when you're in that place where you're having to show you've got the strength of a leader and, you you know, you, your team mirror your behaviours. So you've got to be able to appear to, to be in charge or in control. And the reality is people see through all of that anyway. And the, the more human you can be, yes, you need to be clear. Yes, you have got to have a plan. But ultimately making those mistakes will happen it's trying to bounce back from them as quickly as possible i mean and whatever you can say minimize them well it all depends sometimes it's important to lose or have setbacks in order to find the next level what you have to do is know when to arrest a slide when it starts to happen because momentum is everything and if you start to go in a negative direction and free fall it's as i learned with chicago you can't get out of it um and i know that i needed that in order to be where i am now and without that i don't think i'd have been able to have the impact i've had at chelsea uh without failing as much as i did so you spent a few years in chicago uh eating the pizza the the italian beef etc presumably having Paisano. Oh yeah. See, I I do enjoy my trips back. Uh, my my waistline less so. Um, I'm sorry, but in Paisano is not in the UK, so I always thought that was immense. You live in and around London. I just miss good Italian sausage. That's one thing that I I miss a lot, and uh, yeah, tougher to find here. Uh, so anyway, you come back uh, and and you start with Chelsea Women in 2012. Yeah, I came home actually to help my father's business, which is just a small currency exchange business in the middle of Covent Garden. And through my experiences of working with some wacky goalkeepers in the US who are both, one of them, Amanda Vandervoort, is uh, uh, the digital queen. And the other one, Nathan Kipp, who I work with at Iona and Chicago, who was... Uh, a CRM king, and he taught me an awful lot about content management systems, etc. And those exposures for me kept me interested in the uh, process-driven part of my profession. I've always been, I've always uh, been interested in how to create the right systems and the right order around the chaos. And those two influenced me to set up a business with my father and my family, building online content management system for currency. And we, we have an online business to buy and sell money that we send all around the UK. So I did that for two years. And then I got a phone call from Chelsea to ask me if I wanted to take over their team. And I didn't hesitate. I didn't ask them how much money they were going to pay me. I didn't ask about the length of the contract. I said, yeah, I'll do it. And I went to Cobham the following day and I walked across Cobham and I just couldn't believe the amount of potential that was in front of me and that I had the mortgage paid because I had another job and that for a while that I was part-time involved with Chelsea, I was going to make sure I did everything possible to grow the game and that I'll put everything forward to communicate upwards with the board and whomever. I built various relationships uh, across the club to get them to buy into to women's football. And thankfully for me, um, I work with some amazing people that love the girls and have 
really supported women's football at our club. And I'd like to think we as a club have been big drivers in elevating the, the, the women's game, especially in this country, to new heights. I think that's true. And I think you know, partly it's your success, partly it's you being out front in a lot of ways and, and willing to to discuss you know the difficulties like being very frank is is certainly one of your your traits i think it's a positive but i'm american so i i kind of lean that way um yeah <laughs> but you know the success uh, also helps yeah it does but as i said to someone the other day i was born in the uk but i was definitely made in america and i think that i bought that bolshe though yes it's part of who i am i bought that that confidence, that 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 young coach from my owner that sat in the interview, or the the one that had made the mistakes from Chicago to the one who had sat my thirty seven year old boss on the bench. All of those collective experiences had put me in the place to say, "Listen, I've been in the land of women's football, and I know what it looks like, and this is nowhere near it. So let's raise the bar." Sometimes it's contentious. Sometimes it agitates. I probably do it less as I age because we've managed to raise the minimum standards. So I'm content for all the people that that I represent in my industry that we have a professional game and that we can build upon that. I think now it's about collaboration and that collaboration with all those stakeholders, partners, the FA, clubs, etc., is where I spend most of my energy now because together we'll go to the next level and not if we're in direct conflict with each other. So at Chelsea, uh, what was it? 2014 was the first time you guys won the FAWSL, is that right? And then 2015 is a double, 2017 uh, another win, 2018 a double, 2019 you get pipped. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) Um. Something like that. Couple I know a couple of Champions League semifinals in there. Yeah, that there's been consistent success, which is what I stand for. Um, winning is what I do, um, and every drain of my energy and every thought that I'm consumed with is about how to get to that point. And it might not always be popular and I might not always be liked, but I will find ways with the people that I work with to win. And I, I, like I think it's impossible to, to sort of blaze a path when everybody like and be totally liked at the same time. I, I just, especially in a leadership role where you have to, you know, elevate players that, you know, may or may not be ready. You have to, you have to cut your darlings. And, and that's absolutely true. And you have to kind of cultivate, you know, a fresh group that can go after it year after year after year, which is what you have to do. I, I don't think that, you know, being liked, while it's very nice, is, is like universally popular possible in that role. It's just not there. You know, I believe in a player centric approach and I, communicate well and will always consider everyone sometimes i can't cater for everyone but i will absolutely my door's always open Uh, the players will always tell you that i will always want to improve things and conditions and the environment i'm very evolutionary i don't stand still I think it's crucial that I lead the way with that when I represent a group of players, that I ask them to do the same. And I will go to bat for my people. And that is something that will never change with, with me. And I, I'm i proud of the work I've done in my career. Like I don't feel uh, unfulfilled, far from it. I feel full. I feel full of the highs and lows of my profession, the, you know, the, I've had, I've experienced every part of it. I've been a head coach, an assistant coach, an analyst. I've washed kits. I've coached universities. And whatever I've needed to do in my industry, I've put my hand to it. And like I said, I, I don't feel I have, I have to prove myself. So work for me is a pleasure. I love it. English people often sort of listen to someone like you and and someone like myself, and you have a lot of what I would call self-confidence. And that self-confidence is built off of having done it. 
Like you're not confident because like you you have this irrational belief that you can do something. You're confident because you've been through it many times. You've succeeded many different ways. You failed, and, and and like you know what failure looks like and feels like as well. But like English people often view that as arrogance, especially in, in Americans. But I I don't you know I I I think that's I'm saying I hear that from you. And when we talk about stuff, you're also quite open. And, and you're willing to take on new ideas. And you're willing to challenge yourself and your own beliefs. Uh, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But one of the first things I want to ask you is, how do you feel about Leon? Leon? Yeah, the women's team. You know, the almost the bogey team out there. The the one that seems to. I like playing Leon. I, like playing Leon. I, I know that regardless of their current status in the game, there are lots of clubs coming for them. And... I think it's important that uh, that happens in the game for our women's game, whether it's teams from our league or Germany or Spain, that that we keep competing uh, with Leon. And listen, they're the top team, so everybody wants to knock, knock them off their perch. And I think when you consider how close we came to doing that, I think if there was a bit more belief in my group a little bit earlier, uh, that was a big learning for me. Uh, in the first leg was that we realised a little bit too late that we had the measure of them and I think some of our players will have to live with that but I know that that thought will consume them and prepare them for when it happens again um, and I admire them, I respect them serial winners but I want to knock them over, hands down Yeah, I love it, like, I love the competitiveness um, So speaking of competitiveness I, I just my slide up right now is is the league table for this season. This season is insane in the women's super yeah. league. Right. I mean, it's tight. It's tight. <laughs> Six, Sixteen games played. City are on forty. Fifteen games from you guys. You're on thirty nine points. You've got a slightly better goal difference as well. Uh, Arsenal women had two losses in their last three. They're on thirty six, but like that's the only time they've really stumbled this season. They've got three total losses. Like that is wild, and obviously like way far ahead of the rest of the league. Um, you know there've been there've been troubles with some some pitch and stuff, which is why some of the the like a very wet uh, winter did not help, especially with the women's side of the game. Um, but yeah, I I try to remember like a three team race like this, and and even men's side is very very tricky. But it's been amazing to watch, especially from from afar. It, you know what? The, the three top teams, and I think credit to Man United behind that, have really pushed. Uh, Everton too, I think, entering the fray. Um, it, it's, it's what's to be expected when you've got teams with top quality players and the top three teams all have top quality players and... This is the first season I think we've had major successes against both City and Arsenal. And we've, I believe, taken 10 points from 12 against our rivals. And that, for me, is significant. It's the two draws that have let us down. Um, but that is that is the ruthlessness that I expect my team to keep developing. And I think we've become more clinical um, as the seasons progress we have developed methods to execute that within our training environment and we have held the players accountable and made them extremely conscious and aware of the things that really matter day in day out in the training environment and we measure things to make sure they are aware of how we are improving or not. So it's tight and it will be a little bit of a sprint if the season resumes because I think that's really difficult to try and play a ton of games in a short space of time with no prep. But it is what it is and so far I'm extremely happy with the progress the team's making. Yeah, I, I think that it's also a credit to where the Super League's at that you can have three top teams that are executing like this. Like It's not like you know the, they just happen to be good and everybody else is terrible. These teams are incredible. And, and the games against each other have been blockbusters this year. You know, sometimes they're, they're a little one-sided. I, I don't want to say anything about the Arsenal match that you guys you know, came out and, and basically bullied them with some early goals. And then it wasn't very competitive after that. But yeah, you know, it's it's credit to the league itself that that you know you've got three 
great teams that are able to do that and would probably be able to compete across the entirety of Europe with with anybody out there. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a credit to successful teams. Like Arsenal had an unbelievable year last year. And as I know from being in winning positions, nothing stays the same. So Arsenal are not going to face an easier time of it as a result of that winning. Far from it. When you are the team with the with the target on your back, and the champions always are, regardless of who they are, it makes it that much harder. But they are an exceptional team with exceptional players. So to win three out of three this season is a real credit to to my players because you're talking about some of the best players in the world playing at that club. And you picked up one of the, the most notable forwards in mid-season in, in women's world football and Sam Kerr. And so, like, you hadn't had Sam for the whole season. And, you know, you probably have done some adjusting since she's arrived as well. Yeah, I think it's always hard for new players in of status or, you know, uh, the magnitude of a signing. It takes about six months to settling. I've rarely seen players come in and hit the ground running. So credit to her. She came in, she adapted well. She was really sick at the beginning. She played the Arsenal game with the flu. And had she not been tested for H1B uh, flu, which she was, I think, a week later, um, I think we all, we all thought she maybe she, in hindsight, she, she would have had coronavirus because uh, we actually, our team thinks that that may well have been in the country earlier on in the season. But... Um, she has settled in like she's been there for years because of the person she is. She's fantastic character. And I think once she gets her feet under the table, she'll bring another level to the team because she knows how to put the ball in the back of the net. So what are we, what are we hearing about the, the finish to the season? Uh, do we have any timelines on that? Um, hopefully in June it will kick off. Uh, but everything medically has to be right and all the conditions around that. And I think at the moment, the league and clubs are working through to see if that's possible. And I think until we determine those things, I don't think we know when it will resume. One of the big concerns in the in the media surrounding the, the women's game is that, you know, in many cases, they are a budgetary afterthought. And I don't think that's true at Chelsea, but in, in some other places it, it is. And so the concern is that with teams, you know, forced into mandatory cuts almost across their, their businesses, is that going to impact the women's game, which already is, you know, a, a comparatively tiny piece of the, the budget for, for football in Europe? Well, you, you know, you, you, you would hope the, the, the strides we've made means that we're on tighter footing than we would have been five years ago. Uh, FIFA committing to uh, one billion over the next few years towards the women's game, I think is the endorsement that the game needed to confirm that that money will still be assigned to us. But I think FIFA can do more. Now they There's a lot of money in their reserves that could help the game, including the women's game in this particular time. And I think for the smaller clubs or the smaller leagues that are going to struggle uh, that is where I think FIFA, UEFA's money is crucial um, uh, in the next two years to make sure that we don't take backward steps in the game. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I talked to Gabriel Marcotti uh, a few weeks ago about sort of the FIFA potential kind of backstop fund. And I said the easiest way for them to support the women's game is to simply step in and say, look, we will we will fund the budget gap for women's football across all of the big leagues. Um, because like it is such a small portion of the overall problem and it is such an easy way to just say, Hey, yeah, like, we'll, you know, we know that there's a crisis. We've got this giant $2.7 billion um, fund that's sitting here or like, you know, cash fund. And it's, it's easy for us to do that. I don't know if they will, but you know, comparatively that would make a lot of sense. And it would, it would again, sort of prove their case that they are trying to support the women's game after a very long time of, of mostly ignoring it. Yeah, I think it's it's. I think everybody's waiting to see what FIFA will do with that backstop, and I think now is the time that it has to come into use. You're not going to face a bigger crisis worldwide than we are right now, and the game needs the support of 
the Premier League or FIFA or UEFA, you know, all the big organisations that, that need to step in and make sure our game survives this testing period and 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 hopefully then we won't take backward steps from it. I will say one of the positives is that the women's game is a lot more visible now. Like it, it is easier to get press out there. Um, as much as football gets any press in the COVID environment, uh, people do pay a little more attention than they would have a few years ago. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think you think about the important years that are coming up in the women's game, the Olympics, albeit moved, and then the Euros the following year, then the World Cup, then the Euros again. There's a big future ahead for the women's game and lots to look forward to. I think just during this time, there's going to be a slowing down of lots of things temporarily. Um, and that's why, for me, it's about not going backwards. If we have to hold our position for now and we grow the game again once society becomes more... Uh, there's less distancing, there's, there's certainly a vaccine. The hope that we can return to some sort of normality at some point, we'll see uh, the game take a step in the right direction again. So I want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on coaching. Uh, Cause I, I know that you and I, I, I learned from you. I know that you've spent some learning journeys in recent years as well. Um, so you've got this phrase that I, I came across and I, I've, I've added it to you being um, with a picture of you with the queen on, on the visible slides. But right. uh, the, pod, the podcast won't, won't have that unfortunately. Uh, it's a phrase that says you can't buy it. And it's in reference to, to coaching and talking to other coaches. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, you know, I, I, I might get scores of applications that come through to me with the prettiest CVs, with unbelievable number of coaching courses on them, yet zero coaching experiences. And there is no substitute for doing it. You can't skip it. You can't license it you can't take it solely from one source or another the best experiences gained in coaching is by doing it and that's what i mean by not buying it and a wise mentor of mine all once told me don't skip the steps of it as much as you want to go from being whoever you are to pet guardiola in 10 minutes it's so crucial you you do absolutely everything in and around that prior to that because otherwise you won't be ready for it. So and I, I buy that value. Yeah, like alongside of that, like I I have spent my own time sort of studying how coaches learn and found it to be quite different than you know, what, what the ownership group had thought at, at the club that I was at. And you, know, you can't just throw a book at these guys and, and tell them to learn how to coach how Pep does or clo coach, you know, Klopp's style of defense or anything like that. And that has nothing to do with the, the elements of the personal elements, where I think you're, 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 you're pretty avant-garde in some of the personal things that you do. Like I, I, I've read a, a lot of things in, you know, the mindset work that you do and, and you talk about the timing of preparation on the mental preparation, not, not the timing of like periodization and stuff like that, but the timing on when to approach the mental game. Like, I think that's a level that I don't often hear from anybody, but you know, your perspective and, and possibly your gender make it interesting and, and maybe more natural for you to approach that. Well, I'm curious. I'm just a curious person and, when you're put in a position to lead people, I view my job as a servant. That's what I'm there to do. I'm there to serve the people I work for. So I need to constantly reflect how best to do that. And it has to be diverse. You can't approach it, any of it, from, you know, one size fits all. And that for so long, I'm in a profession where we talk about muscles, the body and the physical and then uh, little bits of, of tactical and here and there. And we spend zero time talking about the big, one of the biggest muscles in our body, our brain, and how you have to prepare that for every element of it. Because I'm almost certain if that's not right, you won't win anyway. You can't. If your mind and your understanding of how your mind, your brain works is less than it needs to be, uh, when the challenge comes, you won't know how to cope because emotion plays a major part in who we are as human beings. 
And learning how to manage that is critical if you're going to be able to deal with the most pressured situations. And that's something I probably will move further and further into with my coaching because I think it's the difference between winning and losing. So the other aspect of coaching that often gets lost is, yes, you can learn about a thing, but you almost never learn the application on a, on a per-weekly basis with different sorts of teams and different sorts of styles. And one of the fascinating things about the FAWSL is just how different some of those teams are. And obviously, the talent levels are very different and the budgets are very different, but it feels like you know, the Premier League maybe 10, 15 years ago, where you do have some elite teams that have like dynamic styles of play, and then you have a lot of teams that are, that are pretty traditional English uh, that you have to you know, adjust your players and their availability and how to approach that game every single week. And I think that, you know, the thing that gets lost about coaching is like, that's a repeatable iteration that you have to learn. And it's not obvious how to approach those situations without having done it before. No, you, it's, it's, it's understanding patterns of behavior that happen. Like so many times I can be in the middle of a game and something happens, and I know I've been there before. So whether you've lost momentum in the game or you know things weren't quite right in how you started it or the before the game, etc., you know that your response to it could have – it will have a minuscule effect because ultimately play games, but it's absolutely critical when things are in crisis or things are out of control that you can think completely clearly under pressure to be able to give the right information at the right time. Now, the, for me, the, the real litmus test of, of player development is when you're in a position where players can constantly evaluate, make decisions under pressure again and again and again and again and recognise the patterns because often they don't. They might say, like a team may change a shape uh, at the beginning of a game that you haven't prepared for. And and for some players, that can throw them off so massively. For others, they can see it, solve it, communicate it. And for me, the art, the essence of coaching is being able to throw enough curveballs at your players so that they can do that and make sure you do it in a way where it's chaotic enough so that they can take it on board, but but it has to be done methodologically. I'm a firm believer in having a methodology in and around the way you play first and foremost, but that you've got to be able to adapt as and when situations present themselves and do it without raising your heart rate. And one of the things that the coaches often have a problem with the analysts, especially the ones that are that are more data and quantitative, is they're like, we think that this is how it's going to happen. Like, this is the probability of this. And, and coaches very rarely talk in probabilities. But the fact of the matter is, if you dig into it a little bit, you're like, how confident are you that your opponent is going to set up like this in the next game? And then you're suddenly like, well, yeah, I, I think that this is what's going to happen. But, you know, you're talking about making adjustments on the fly because something didn't quite turn out either from our end or their end uh, to start the game. And that is exactly the same thing that the, the stats nerds do. We just do it with numbers to start with and then we give you info. Yeah, and it's, it, it, it's critical to do it. And there is also a part within that that when those changes happen, just you can't crumble. Sometimes you just got to hang in there. You've got to hang in there and know that to win the war, you're not going to win every battle. And that as long, I've, I've always felt and I've had a long held belief that winning football matches is first and foremost, making sure you're not out of it. Stay in it. Because yes, anything can happen either side of it, but I've been out of leagues before they've even begun or when you, you're, you're three or four nil down quite quickly with, because you want to be overly ambitious with something, makes it there's there's an ebb and a flow to a football match, which means your opponent is going to have a period, and maybe not a period, maybe moments of domination or chances created. And as you know, you don't have to have high XGs to score goals. The amount of times teams this season were scoring goals against us with extremely low XGs, and as thinking to myself, well, this, this, if, if we keep certain patterns of behavior, this will even itself out somewhere along the lines. 
But more importantly, let's be drawn into the fact that if a team's concede, if we're conceding with a team creating very little, something's not being done right by us. So let's zoom into that and try and fix and arrest that. And 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 I think it, it will make us more conscious about the things that we can control. As opposed to the opposition, I can't control what the opposition does. Well, and even as good as your team is, like for a 15 or 20 minute stretch, if the other team really wants to burn themselves out, like they can potentially, you know, dominate a game against you. And it's, it doesn't happen that often because the consequences are pretty bad. But like, that's just football. You know, if somebody wants to run themselves into the ground, it's possible. Yeah, it is. And I think because I've coached in so many games now of my career, I, I do. I honestly do respect the opponent to know that the game is never over until it's over. But I like to think that I develop really resilient teams that are... You know, when you list the, the successes of the team in my tenure, all I, all I think of in my mind is not trophies or winning. All I keep thinking is... We, we were competitive every year. We know how to be in. We know how to be in for a title challenge, or we know how to get to the latter stages. And that took me a long time to master. I think as a coach. Well, it's a great point, and, and brings me to my, my next two questions, which will which will wrap us up here. The first one is: is how has your coaching philosophy changed this season? Hmm. Good question. Um, you can see that I failed to prep you properly. <laughs> well, first of all, I've got the same set of players bar one in terms of Guru coming in. Yes, there's some outs, mainly probably Karen Carney from that group in. Uh, so when you when you have a group of people that you for a period of time, that their relationships develop and that in itself starts to develop different things within the game because their relationships build on the pitch, their telepathy builds on the pitch. Uh, is a two, formations for me are merely nonsense to put up on a screen to make everybody feel comfortable. But the having clear roles and clear communications between each of those roles are critical because the roles and the responsibilities trump anything else. And so I focus on those things and I focus on being adaptable and versatile, but most importantly, train as we want you to play. And that we're going to have to constantly find ways to stimulate how we do that with enough of the right interventions. And the big thing I'm think I've focused on this year is I'm not going to let you get too comfortable. So if I can find the way to pull the rug from you, I will. With your players, and your I, own players. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I will disturb them, disrupt their schedules and do things when I know they're getting too entitled or they get too comfy. Um, and I look to shift things to keep their minds working all the time so that the, we don't get complacent because complacency is always, always at the heart of a demise. And that for me, stimulating that response all the time is one that I think will get even worse for my players as I become uh, more demanding of, and more, I think as I understand more about what elite performance involves, um, but at the heart of it, it's all about team. And it's all about having the right values and behaviours around that team. And if you don't display them, or I'm not saying you can't go off track and you can't make mistakes, but if you don't fall into that pathway, the team will spit you out. And so it's absolutely critical that our objective is always the same. Everybody's objective to win, to play, whatever that might be. But how we behave within that becomes crucial to the way that we are seen, to the way that we behave. And fundamentally, I have a team of people that are there to make sure that the players are on top of their daily behaviours so that they're in the position to repeat performance all of the time. And alongside of that, like, what sort of new information are you incorporating um, 
you know, this year or in recent years that maybe you hadn't really touched on before? Um, I think it will. I've been this year's been a big focus on the twenty-two hours off the pitch, and whatever that means, that could be anything from menstrual cycle to nutrition to uh, analysis to self-reflection to sleep. All of the 22 hours off the pitch, I've been, we've been making sure that we educate the players and brought in a right group of experts to guide them through that process. I think the next developments uh, for me will be in around neuroscience. Cognitive aspects of the game, how people process information. And I think being able to replicate what you need to in a football context. It's one thing to say you need resilience, for example, uh, to be a high, a high level performer. But how do you develop foot? How do you develop resilience in a football context and in a non-football context? And for me, I'm involved with my staff team at the moment. It's a really interesting work that I'm really, really excited about going forward. So you're not a huge fan of coaching badges, and we heard this at, at the, the Statsman conference, and I've seen you quoted elsewhere. Where do you go when you want to learn new stuff? Everywhere. I'll go absolutely everywhere to go. You know, we've got... Uh, I'm very broad about that. I won't get stuck in a single sector. At the moment, I might be really keen on the processes to, to develop data patterns behind COVID-19 to uh, could be a seminar I'm watching tomorrow from Eddie Jones to a TED talk to uh, how my two-year-old uh, is learning phonics. It, I, I will range from one end of the spectrum and I'm interested in learning and what is it I can take from something and apply it in a, a football way. But importantly, it's taking what you already have and how do you keep improving it again and again and again, but have freshness, not just newness, because it's so easy to keep chopping and changing. And there's, there's a, for me, that's not the key part to keep something fresh requires uh, effort, but to be able to develop new pathways in your brain, to developing a deeper understanding of a simple topic, uh, we have to be conscious of how we deliver that all of the time. That's the dynamic learning concepts that we see out of some of the German schools, where like you, you want to be able to to challenge, you know, sort of football motions or football thoughts or whatever from as many different ways as you can and you need to be able to to do these in different contexts but it still needs to be football and and like for you i guess as a coach or as a as a leader and, and an educator as well which is kind of all and a mom um you know it, it's often like let, let's find some information let's test my ideas you throw so much out but that doesn't mean that like the test wasn't worthwhile because now you're like, well, I'm not a huge fan of that thing. And, and so I'm going to discard that for now. But maybe, you know, if, if somebody else comes along and explains it better or gets rid of these problems that I see in it, then I'll consider reincorporating it. Well, I, I'd like to say curiosity is at the heart of it. Openness, willingness. I Sharing for me is not a problem. I, I'm more than happy to tell you how I'm going to beat you. That's not an issue uh, because it's like someone saying to me, oh, my God, why are you letting a docu-series come in? You're going to give away all the things that you do. I'm like, no, we're not because for 12 months' time it will be somewhere else. It's not, it won't be new knowledge. And more importantly, I have a responsibility to my profession and the game, and I take that role uh, with great pride that if there's a young coach sitting there and wanting to aspire to be whatever they want to be, what, how nice is it that they might have a female role model to aspire to? I never had that. And I, I, I think that I'm extremely fortunate and I'm privileged, but I'm from a very, listen, I'm from a working class background. As far as I'm concerned, knowledge is power, but only uh, for me, I'm far more interested in generosity and I have a spirit and 
a character that is all about giving as much to the game as it's given to me. Well, I want, on that note, it's a good moment to stop and say thank you very much for your time and your generosity in, in joining me today and uh, your insight as well. And thanks to you for everything because I enjoy our times together and our conversations and I'm sure uh, that will go on for a long time to come. Well, everybody listening, uh, thank you very much to Emma Hayes, uh, MBE, head coach of Chelsea Women Football, uh, role model, mother, and, uh, and a pretty damn good talker. So thank you for your time. And that's it for us today. Take care.